This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? I'm all ready. Go all right, it. guys. Guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. Before we get into it with my friend, Bree Pettis, let's take care of a little business. What do you say? First things first, Broadback Ironworks. Broadback Ironworks are the makers of the 2x72 grinder. They make beautiful grinders for knife makers, woodworkers, metal workers. If you're removing material, this is the, this is the piece of equipment that you need. And I will tell you this. It's the my favorite piece of equipment in the shop, and it goes horizontally, vertically. It has tons of attachments. They're an awesome company, and they're great guys. And if you go to broadbackironworks.com, you put in the promo code KNIFETALK200, you're going to get $200 discount off their grinder packages, the Max, Premium, and the Mega. And if you put in KNIFETALK100, you're going to get $100 off their sharpening system, surface belt grinder, and their leather sewing machine. And now, when this comes out, you're going to have a couple days but the they're, uh, the Black Texas Blade Show, they're having a sale. Broadback's having a sale. So between now, the seven, whenever this comes out and the ends Sunday, March 26th, you get $250 gift card from their to their website for the per- purchase of the Max package, $300 gift certificate for the premium package, and $400 for the mega package. So from now until uh, when you hear this, until March 26th, you can uh, get yourself some discounts, more discounts on Broadback Ironworks. So check out that. And uh, I want to thank Broadback. Those guys are the best. Next is Even Heat. Even Heat are the manufacturer of the finest heat treat ovens available. To find your next oven, go to evenheat-kiln.com. If you're in the tool making business, if you're doing any kind of knives, swords, hammers, axes, anything that needs to be hardened, you're going to need a kiln. If you're in pottery, you're going to need a you're going to need a kiln for 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 that. So go get yourself one of them even heats. And if you check out evenheat-kiln.com, you can see all the different things they have. You can do the tap control. You can a ramp master. They have ones that run on 120, ones that run on 220. It's an awesome company, and they have great customer service. So go check out what they're doing over. Even he, and if you listen to Knife Talk, you'll know that there's a distributor that's giving free shipping and $75 off when you buy it in Even Heat. So go check out what's going on over at Even Heat and go check out what's going on at Knife Talk. You know what I'm saying? All right. Thank you once again, Spence and the guys. You guys are the best. Next are my friends in Australia, Nordic Edge, uh, nordicedge.com.au. They are a great company in Australia that they have. All the knife-making stuff you're going to need if you're a beginner or you're, or you're a veteran or if you're a blacksmith or you even want to take classes, go check out what's going on over at nordicedge.com.au. Um, they are an awesome, awesome part of the knife-making community in Australia, but they're doing blacksmithing classes as well. So definitely go follow them on Instagram, nordic underscore edge. Uh, like I said, you know, if you're a young knife maker and you just put your, your burgeoning knife maker and you want to make a knife in Australia, but you don't have an oven, you don't have a grinder, they sell kits and you can get yourself a kit. Um, so go check out what they got there. They have all sorts of tongs and, and hammers and they have all sorts of stuff over there. So definitely go check out what's going on over there. And if you want a great file guide, go get the big Mert, the big Mert file guide, which they have at, um, knifekits.com in Atlanta. Speaking of other companies, (laughs) 
Mar- Maritime Knife Supply. That's MaritimeKnifeSupply.ca, MaritimeKnifeSupply.com. They're in uh, Canada. So all your knife-making needs, belts, abrasives, steels, kilns, forges, presses, heat-treating ovens, anvils, anything you need to get started or resupply. They're in Canada, but they ship to the United States with ease, and you can take advantage of the exchange rate. They have a, lots of steel selections, and uh, Lawrence Lake is constantly adding things to uh, the company so he can better help you. Like abrasive belts. He's got tons of abrasive belts, and if you get one of their packs of 10, you're going to get 10% off. That's one belt free. Um, they have Dr. Laren Thomas's must-have book knife and engineering. They have TR Maker, all the TR Maker equipment. They have everything you need. And if you if you're in Canada, and you say, you know what, these guys in the United States, they got all the good stuff. Why don't you? We need this. Send him a message. I'm sure he'll get it stocked. I know he has a lot of great things, and he's very involved with the New England School of Metalworks. So he's a knife maker. So he kind of knows what you need anyway. So go check out Maritime Knife Supply and um, see what the fuss is about. What do you say? I want to thank my next sponsor, Trojan Horse Forge, makers of the Stable Rail Knife Finishing Vice. Their vice is made in the heart of Texas. These vices are designed to take your handle finishing to a whole new level. Not only your handle finishing, but the whole knife. Um, they're, they're, it's a beautiful vice that fits into your, a tabletop vice. And what you can do is you can bolt some plates on the bottom. It's covered in rubber, and it allows you to hand sand your blade perfectly. It supports your distal taper. It supports a kukri. If you had a curved blade, it supports a, a integral bolster. Whatever you got, it supports. It's very flexible, and it's very. Uh, it's an awesome. It's an awesome knife finishing vice. And then when you have your handle scales all squared away, and you're all glued up, and you need to finish that handle, you turn it around, and you use it for your handle. So go check out what's going on over at the. Trojan Horse Forge. That's TrojanHorseForge.com. And if you put in the promo code Full Blast, you're going to get free shipping in the United States. I would highly suggest taking a look at it. And they do payment plans. It's definitely worth it. Um, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge fan of Trojan Horse Forge. Those guys are down in Texas. They got some new things going on. I think they have some new glue-up attachments for your hidden tang knives. So check out what they're going on over at TrojanHorseForge.com. And if you're in the knife game and you're looking to, you know, make yourself a little bit higher level and you want some thing for your, for your customers a little bit more razzle-dazzle, go get yourself some of that Baker Forge and Tool exotic steels. The guys at Baker Forge and Tool are making incredible steels. And if you go to BakerForge.com, you can see what they got. They have Sand Mai and they have Go Mai and they have Bronze Mai and they have a patterned, uh, Mosaic Pattern Damascus. This stuff is awesome, and uh, Coy Baker's developed his own technique for fusion welding copper directly to carbon steel without the aid of pure nickel. The method was previously completely unknown to modern smiths. Not only was the bond good, uh, good as a normal fusion weld, but as far superior. The strength achieves uh, stand the, the strength achieved stands to better shear testing than previous methods. Um, this stuff is awesome, and he sent me some a couple. I guess a couple of years ago when I finally got around to it. And the cool thing is, especially if you're a stock removal guy, is because there's this copper layer in, you see the core. So the core is ADC or V2 or whatever. He, you know, it depends on what which core material he wants to use. There's a layer of copper or a layer of bronze, and then there on the outside jacket is uh, pattern-welded steel or Damascus. The cool thing is, is with that layer of copper, you can see when your core is exposed. So you don't have to etch it in order to find out. So it's really, really easy to use. Uh, he has total, he has a ton of different um, 
different recipes for heat treatment and normalizing and everything like that. It is very easy to use. And trust me, I'm a giant chicken when it comes to heat treating. Like I don't really like to kind of deviate from what you're supposed to do. It was super easy to do, super easy to finish. And I would highly suggest getting yourself some of that Baker Forge uh, and tool steel for sure. So go to bakerforge.com, put in the promo code full blast and you get 10% off your order. Definitely worth it. Dude, I've made this knife and my customers like went wild. So I'm making more for sure. So thank you once again, Koi and the guys. I appreciate it. Uh, and last but not least, I cannot thank enough Total Boat. Total Boat are the makers of adhesive paints, primers, polishing compounds. They started out for doters, boaters and DIYers and they understand they need your projects to go smoothly. And they realized there's a crossover with the maker community. The maker community is making tables and they're making river tables and they're using knife makers are making a um, hybrid metal material and they make great epoxies that allow you to get where you need to go. So definitely go check out uh, what's going on over uh, Total Boat. Go to TotalBoat.com and you put in the promo code Full Blast. You're gonna get Full Blast ten. You're gonna get ten percent off your stuff. And I've been using their two part epoxy uh, strictly. I think I've probably glued up a two hundred knives with their Total Boat, and I love it. I think it's great. And they also sell dyes that you can pigment the epoxy. So it's definitely worth getting yourself into. Definitely also check out their UV Cure Clear Resin. You put a little bit of that on, and then you hit it with the UV flashlight. Bingo, bango, bongo. You're in business. So go check out what's going on with uh, Total Boat. And I thank you once again, Kristen and everybody at Total Boat. has been awesome. So thank you once again. And now I, I am so excited. This is, this is a guest I've been looking to talk to for quite a long time. Bree Pettis is an amazing guy. He is a maker. He's an innovator. He's an inventor. He's the CEO of Bantam Tools. And he's also some, a pioneer in bringing CNC technology to the home user to allow the creative mind to make something three-dimensionally. My guest right now is Bree Pettis. Bree, are you there? Hey, it's great to be on here. Just to Give you a fair warning. I'm right next to the train tracks. So that's great. If you if you hear that in the background, that's what's going on. But you're on the right side of the train tracks, Bree Pettis. <laughs> a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, you know, I want to just give a little shout out, and that you know, you do your 10 minute spiel at the beginning of every episode. Having been in your shop, you actually use all that stuff, and it works for you really well. So I think um, that's something that's a little different about you. Is like you're you've got a you've got sponsors, but you're like putting that stuff to work. Well, it's, yeah, you know, we had a great time when you came to the shop. Um, you've been in P, the Peak Skill area. Bantam Tools has been in the Peak Skill area now for three years. I mean, you've uh, been through the 20, I, I've been here since 2013, but Bantam Tools moved here in like January of 2018. So, oh, what does man. that make us now? Five years. Goodness Five gracious. Years. Well, I was so glad when you, when you moved here, it was such a huge part of the community. And, it, and it's just so, so great to be here. But I was so happy to have you come to my shop and took, kind of forge with me because you know you're i mean in the making community you what you've created with uh, either MakerBot or bantam tools has been this you've brought cnc technology to the home user and it made it approachable and made it portable and made it very um cnc now is like i know guys who do so much with cnc that it is it's pretty remarkable yeah i mean it's it's um it's funny when when I started MakerBot, people would be like, what, you, "It's a it's a what? It's a three D printer?" And I'd be like, "Yeah, it's kind of like CNC machining, but upside down." 
instead of removing material, it adds material. And now people understand 3D printing more that when I explain CNC machining, I'm like, okay, it's kind of like 3D printing, but instead of additive, it's subtractive. So I, I don't know. I think that just says what like not enough people know about stuff yet, but we're, we're, we got to do our part to, to tell the world that there's machines that can serve them and support them. Well, he, the interesting thing now is the, the, you know, the maker community is very diverse. And I remember, I guess it was the last maker fair uh, in Queens. We were invited, uh, my friend Cliff was invited to do a blacksmithing demo and he brought me and John Ariani, other blacksmiths, and we were like, well, we're going to just do a blacksmithing show. And we came in there and it was the maker community at Maker Fair were people with mm. computers and drones and 3D printers. And I know MakerBot was there and all these guys were there. And we were the only blacksmiths. And we, and it, everyone was kind of shocked, frankly, because it wasn't, it was so much more uh, physical and it was anvils and hammers and stuff like that. And it, what was cool was, is, I mean, we mopped the floor with the place. We got seven blue uh seven uh judges blue ribbons which is amazing but you start to see the difference in in a lot of uh the maker community and what i see now is so many people using cnc for laser cutting and water jet mm. cutting and plasma cutting and it's a little bit it's a little bit more industrial for the people that i see using it but at the same time the fact that you've created these businesses and you've created these this technology to allow a, you know someone to make small parts it's been pretty remarkable Thank you. Yeah, there's still there's still tools I don't have. I really a water jet is on that list. I I I want one of those. I I can actually use it. Like there's a re, like I should just get one, but they're they're kind of intimidating because they're so big and stuff. There's there's two water jets that I know of around here. There's one in Poughkeepsie, um, and they do. It's a it's a break and it's you know these break and shear places. They all yeah. have to have water jets because they're. I mean, in everything now. I mean, companies have started by just completely using um, water jets to build their products and right. stuff like that. But it's 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 what what's amazing is is the ability to you know the, it's it's more it's getting it seems to me that it's becoming more and more. You know, you see it more and more. Yeah, I think it's coming. I mean, Wazer, which is not that far away, they're in. Um, they're just like half an hour south of us. They make a desktop one, and it's not. They've they've got one come. I'm I'm like waiting for their next one to come out. Their pro model, and they basically take like a like a water, like the kind of water pressure, like thing that you clean your your uh, your driveway with, and then they add grit to it. And their they their their next one is like supercharged, so it'll actually like compete with the the big boys, but it's only it's still small. Like I'm waiting for that one. That's the one that I want. Is the the super Wazer one because I can't really afford the floor space of right. a proper water jet. Yeah, that's a big. It's a lot. They're, they're the ones I've seen. That it's a huge floor space. So how do you, so you still buy equipment and you still look at what people are doing and do you still enjoy seeing what other people are doing? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, there's a couple of places. So there's, mm, it depends on what I'm obsessed in, right? Like so. Um, we just got a fifth, uh, an, some used equipment. We got a, a five axis brother, which is like, it's, 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 uh, not a speedio. It's before that. It's like a TC 25 and it's got a fifth axis in it. And so I went down the rabbit hole in that for a while before we bought that. And then we just bought a turning center that we're just learning how to use. And we definitely got more turning center than we can, um, wrap our teeth around and that it's got like two spindles and two. Two turrets and all this live tooling and 
you know, we're, we're definitely up to our eyeballs in that. But, uh, uh, so I, I get, I, part of that's like, I want more, I want to have, I'm, we're, I want to expand our capacity of the things that we can do in-house at Bantam Tools. And then for my, the personal tools I use, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm down the rabbit hole on drawing machines and art machines. That's the stuff that, that's like my personal passion is around plotting. Yeah, we got to talk about that pretty soon. But one of the things, you know, thinking, reading about you and, and, and all the articles and, and, and seeing everything about you, one thing that I find is overlooked when they talk about your history is the fact that you work for the Jim Henson Company. Right. What yeah, was that, that was... like? <clears throat> you know, I, um, that was wild. So I, through a relative, managed to get a job on... So this is a good story. So I'll rewind a little bit. So I'm in, I'm in college and I'm at the Evergreen State College, which is about as liberal arts college as you can get, right? Like it is the most liberal arts college. So, you know, you take like one course per year and it, it incorporates all these different things. And, you know, I was in, a, my first course was called uh, Problems Without Solutions. And we studied Northern Ireland, Israel, Palestine, and South Africa in 1990 when those things were all impossible. And, um, and then by the end of my time there, I'd found a teacher that, I, and I found the professor and I was like, whatever she's giving, I'm taking. Whatever she's offering, I'm going to take. And it turned out she was offering Butoh dance, which is this avant-garde, um, post-apocalyptic, came out after the World War II in Japan dance form, where you like shave off all your hair and paint your body white and like drool publicly, right? Like you're authentic in, huh. in public. And it's pretty, pretty far out there. And then I finished that and had some time before I graduated. So I started, um, and I'd been studying mythology and storytelling and all that kind of stuff as well. And so I dug into puppetry. And um, my aunt Rebecca came to my graduation and saw that I was totally obsessed with puppets. I was like, we had this whole thing in Olympia, Washington, where we were doing like uh, food not bombs and we were, we were dumpster diving and making soup and had our own soup kitchen doing all this stuff. And I was doing puppet shows at that. And then um, ended up right before I left on this, uh, this Puppets Across America tour with this 64 Dodge that I'd rebuilt the engine and was ready to take it across, take the show on the road. My uncle calls me up that was married to my aunt Rebecca and was like, so I hear you're into puppets. And he's got, he's, <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's a badass. He's Donald Kushner. He's done like, he, he, he produced Tron and all this kind of stuff. He's like a, a legitimate Hollywood person. And he's like, so I hear you're into puppets. And I'm like, yep. He's like, so I'm making a movie with the most expensive fucking puppet ever. I'm like, that sounds rad. And he's like, so if I put you on set, do you think you can make yourself useful? And I was like, yes. He's like, okay, get down here to LA and I'll put you on an airplane. This, the show's in, in Prague. Is that a problem? And I was like, no problem. And so I found myself on an airplane. I, I had to hang up and be like, what country is Prague in? Because <laughs> I'm like 20 and a total noob. And, uh, and it's, so it's 1995 and you know, the, the, the wall has come down and Prague is still in this sort of interstitial zone where like doctors are still getting paid like $300 a month, but like Western shampoo is like $10 a bottle. Wow. And so I was there making tea for the coolest people on the planet. Uh, on the on second unit with uh, John Stevenson running second unit, and he ran the creature shop at that time. So then um, they, I mean, it was a British crew in a foreign country with an American making them tea. They were miserable, and um, and 
then I finished that up and worked on Snow White, A Tale of Horror with Sigourney Weaver, which was a bad movie, but a good time. And then I got invited to go work on, do Steadicam work with a bunch of, with um, Sasha and Clemens, who were these guys who were just completely madmen uh, on Jean-Claude Van Damme films. And instead I was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to follow my dream to London, go to the creature shop, see what happens. And um, I knew enough people from working from them that I could go to the front door every day and be like, hi, I'm here to see Adrian. And they'd be like, Adrian, this guy named Bree's here. And Adrian would be like, yeah, send him in. So I'd go in, and then I just started working there. And um, a few weeks into it, John Stevenson calls me into his office, and he's like, Bree, do you work here? I'm like, yes, I do. He's looking me up and down. And I'm like, but and I'm like, but you don't pay me yet. Can we resolve that? And he he he's like, okay, that's bold, bold move. And uh, a few weeks later, he got me a paid job on uh, Buddy with Rene Rousseau making Rubber Gorillas. And so then, the you know, I was I was such a kid, you know, I was, but I I was willing to do anything. So they just put me to work doing anything, and I learned a ton. And then we, so we built the gorillas in, in Camden, London at the creature shop there, which is just magic place. You know, you've got the, you've got animatronics, so you've got a machine shop. It's the nineties. So it's all pre-CNC. Uh, you've got the, um, you've got this plaster mold shop and those guys are like, those guys are hardcore. Those are probably the most hardcore people in that whole spot. Cause they've got like, they're, you know, they're, they're chemists as well as just like, I don't know. They're just. You don't mess around with them. Um, apparently, somebody once said on, a, uh, on some film that they were shooting on, that, like they, they had like too many people from the mold shop on, you know, that they were on payroll, and we should let one of them go. And they, they, ran, they basically brought the whole place to a stop. So you, they're sort of like the Teamsters, I guess, the, the plaster and mold guys. Huh. Anyway, worked in, then moved, and then came to L.A., shot that film, and uh, had a great time, made good friends. You know, the nice thing about being on a film set is like you're, you're working together and there's a beginning and an end to the project. And so you have this really nice opportunity to make relationships and everybody's trying to make it so that like nobody's wasting time. So, you know, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and keep it so that, you know, if somebody else ha is like having trouble, you're like the t different teams support each other. Cause like every second is like $10,000 on a film set. So you're like, okay, you don't want to be the person holding things up and everybody works as a team. So that was a, that, that's, that was a, I, I miss those times in many ways because it was like this, you know, we were, it was really fun, but it was also like 16 hour days. Like we'd work all day and then I was sort of like the, you know, I was so young and naive. I was sort of like the pet of the project. They'd bring me along to dinner and, and I got to see in real time, like art versus money, like the director battling with the producer being like, I need 16 explosions tomorrow. And the producer's like, we only budgeted for one. <laughs> And that sort of battle happening over dinner. Which, so that, that's sort of the portrait of, of Jim Henson's Creature Shop I have. And learned a lot about mechanics, too, and just how to make eyebrows wiggle and stuff like that. My friend uh, Nico, who sometimes comes on the podcast, is a set photographer. He's on, uh, he lives not too far. He's in Putnam Valley, not far from us at all. He's with the set photographer for Darren Aronofsky, and he's also, he, he's on the Joker movie, the new Joker movie, did the Joker movie. And his brother-in-law is he got his brother a job working for the shop that did all the um, visual effects for the uh, physical visual, visual effects, kind of like what uh, Jim Henson for the whale. Mm. And he did, um, so he was on the, the, on the crew that did all the, you know, the makeup and the 
you know, whatever rubber they throw on you to, for the whale, for the Brendan Fraser who won the one best, uh, best, uh, best actor that whole, what I hear from about um, being on a movie set is it is like a brotherhood, but at the same time. Um, and then I love the idea that they're always kind of looking for the next job. I can imagine yeah. that it's just, it gets very like, it gets exciting if, when you're working on a set with other people, but at the same time, it's like, we know that this isn't going to be a career and we need to make sure we run the next, the next thing. Yeah, I think it's, you know, uh, shortly after I left, by the end of the 90s, everything was going digital. And when I went back to visit there in the early 2000s, everybody was at like a fancy like Silicon Graphics high-end computer workstation doing like digital stuff. I wonder, I, I haven't been on a film set since then. I bet it, like something like The Joker is a trip because if the, on the scenes with special effects, you're like, you know, you're in front of a green screen or there's things that you have to pretend are there. I don't know. That's you, you must, I don't know. Working for Jim Henson, you are from the, for that shop. You must have really kind of cut your teeth in, you know, prototyping there i mean that i mean that's i mean it's it's always i would imagine that for for a place like a, a place like for jim henson it's it's all everything is almost new all the time yeah i had i have this i have this memory of um i worked with this guy named flimsy flimsy by name flimsy by nature and um he was the kind of guy who would get a steady cam rig and rent it for the weekend for a shoot and he would do the shoot on friday and then he would spend the weekend reverse engineering and copying it. And a Steadicam unit is like this thing that you put it at the time, you know, this is like a, you know, these are film, film rigs that weigh like 30, 40 pounds. And a Steadicam rig is this like harness that you wear with a uh, technology adapted from helicopter gunships to hold the, the camera steady as you walk around so that it's a smooth transition. And he spent the weekend basically making his own version. And then he would, and then he rented that out. So he was, he was like a, a top-notch reverse engineer, prototyper, troublemaker. And um, when we came to LA, he was he's English. He would we would go on weekends for fun to to Home Depot and Lowe's and places like that in LA because they don't have those in the UK. And he would opine about how like there's nothing new to invent and material science is pretty much figured out. And if you're going to invent anything, you got to kind of take two different things and smash them together and you know, and they would give me like these crazy jobs to be like, we need this thing that acts like this so we can pose a finger and we need to be able to repose it and it shouldn't break. So I'd be out there looking for all sorts of crazy pieces of wire and driving around LA trying to find stuff. But yeah, that, that idea of like combining flimsies, I remember flimsy very specifically in Home Depot being like, you could take this like, and this, and we're in Home Depot just looking at tools and stuff. And what happens if you smash them together? That's the only way to get new things these days. That must have been a, I mean, a, a, a very creative way to start thinking because you're, you have very specific parameters of what is needed. Yeah, and I think that if you go into the film industry, you sort of, um, you know, you have to make it look good, right? So as long as it's not, as long as you can keep the, the tricks out of shot, you can get away with a lot of stuff, right? You can make it, you can get, it just has to look good. Um, but it's at the like same the, time... Uh, it's like the news anchor doesn't have to wear pants. Right. <laughs> um, and yet at the same time, you have to solve all these problems that only need to be solved once, right? So it, it's, you don't necessarily need to build up the, the like, it, it doesn't need to be reliable in any, in, any, in any way. So 
a lot of the problems you see are sort of duct tape solutions on, on sets. And I think the other thing that you get from working on that I, that I got, I should say, is, you know, I didn't know I could work 16 hours a day. And when you do that for two years, it's like something in your back pocket that if you, you know, I I'm not saying anybody should do that, but if you can do that and then apply it to the things that you care about, it's like a, it's a little bit of a, a superpower, I think. Yeah, endurance. It's yeah. the endurance of, I mean, everything is, I've been recently referring to it as putting in the reps. Yep. And if you, yep. if you, you, you know, building a callus to uh, difficult situations, it's not as bad as it used to be. How would how would you feel? I mean, you leave the you leave the you leave the the Hollywood in Hollywood in general. What makes you decide to leave? You know, I was I was basically burnt out. I I'd, I'd been doing this like 16 hours. I've been on location for 2 years at this point on three different films with, you know, uh like a 6 or 8 month build in Camden and I was like, you know, I'm t I need a little break. And I thought I would just need a break for like a couple weeks or a month, and then I'd jump into the next thing. So I went back to Seattle. And uh, there was, uh, like, I didn't, I, you know, I just sort of got in. Seattle can be sort of a vortex, I think. So I got there. It's so comfortable. There's, like, good food. It's nice. Um, and because I didn't, like, go back to L.A. or go back to London right away, I, I didn't do the, like, what's next hustle. I tried to make it work in, in Seattle. I ended up. You know, I worked on Bill Nye the Science Guy for a little bit until they didn't pay me, and then worked on a, a couple random films and sort of little bits and bobs. But the the scene in in Seattle was not like a, it was more of a commercial scene than a than a film scene. So never really got into that. And then I just ended up, you know, starting my own puppet theater and then working for the old school puppet theater like marionettes and hand puppets and shadow puppets at a with the Carter family marionettes at the Northwest Puppet Center and ended up just getting a job there and sort of falling into that. My only uh, history with, uh, with puppetry, and maybe this will mean something to you, maybe it won't, is I got a, a friend of mine sent me a message a couple of years ago and they said, there's this, there's this uh, person in, in uh, Croton, in, in this, in, not too far from us, who has an anvil and they want to get rid of it. And the history is, is they bought this house from this family it turns out the family had with the 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 was a sculptor. the The mother was a sculptor, and she was uh, a sculptor who created the most famous puppet, one of the most famous puppets, Lamp Chop. Oh yeah. So there, I went into the they they offered it to me, and then I you know I I paid them for it, and I went to the pick it up, and and they were showing me all the this was the shop that they created the puppet Lamp Chop. So I have this beautiful uh, Peter Wright anvil that I kind of reno renovated myself, and then I, I named it Lamb Chop after, uh, I forgot the name, uh, Sherry Lewis. I don't know yeah. if she, if Sherry Lewis was the puppeteer, but I don't think she made the puppet Lamb Chop. But there was a kind of a neat little thing in, um, in regards to puppets. That's my only claim to puppetry, except for, you know, I liked Sesame Street and The Muppet Show when I was a kid. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. I think uh, small communities like this, you know, in retrospect, I was like, oh my gosh, I was like, in my 20s, I show up at Jim Henson Creature Shop for a couple of weeks and then they hired me. This is like amazing. Now that I'm on the other side of it and I hire people and I have a business and I try and find good employees, if I had somebody show up to me and have snuck into my workshop and had worked there a couple of weeks, I'd be like, yeah, get this kid on. Let's do this. Come on. 
because it, it's like that that's not a normal thing but um you know it's a small community like the puppetry community is probably like maximum 300 people are into it making a living off it max so as soon as a new person shows up doing something having it, with anything you know unique it's like the talk of the town because it's not like there's a lot you know it's a small community and then with puppetry you know people get to, every two years um the the puppeteers of america has a conference and they get together and 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 they everybody all the puppeteers do their shows for the other puppeteers and then the people who have puppet theaters are looking for new shows to book and bring into their spot but you you know puppeteers are this unique group where they create worlds and then they expect you to believe that they're true so there's like a certain like megalomania ego trip to go on and um and then you get them all together and then you know they start drinking it's like an amazing it's like it's a it's 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 a awesome trippy community like i and it's it's and the ticket in is to just do something interesting so it's i think there's a i love communities like that i think that uh, that's something i strive for in my life is to is to be interested in things that are weird enough that there's only a few hundred people in the world interested in them and hopefully they get together like that's if I could spend the rest of my life obsessing over things and, and finding communities like that, I'd be pretty happy. Well, now you're—I mean, now you're the, on the in the forefront of generative art or de- digital art. Those plotters that you have—that's—I mean—that's an incredible community in and of itself. Can you yeah, explain I, what that is? That community? Sure. So, um, so I love plotter art. I love love plotter art. So, plotter art is 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 work created in a computer as a program and then deployed to a machine that holds a pen and draws with like a pen right like the kind of pen that you would draw with like what that a person would draw with a, a machine draws with it so the kind of there's a number of things that are exciting about that one is that you know pens are organic physical things with ink in them that have problems like you're if you're using a a rollerball uh, pen, that ball in there is eventually going to deform from use. The ink is going to flow differently. You know, when you, there's, there's like, it's not, uh, while, while the computer might say, we're going to draw this line right here, there's actually like a physical, it's not like a printout of it. It's like, there has to, there, like a pen has to execute that line. So, and, the, and pens are, are by nature organic. So there's this nice, like, uh, space after the computer has to it controls the pen where the pen touches the paper where it's not necessarily where you get to be surprised um so i you know when i sold makerbot in 2013 um before that i'd been an art teacher in public school and i'd i'd really made a go of trying to be a professional artist for you know after being a puppeteer i made a, a go of being a visual artist and then a video artist for many years and i failed miserably but I committed to seeing every when I was in Seattle, seeing every piece of art in Seattle. So they would have an open uh, first Thursday event. I would go to all the galleries and then every show that came through the couple museums in Seattle. And at the beginning, I you know I liked like a, a few percent of what I saw. And then by after ten, you know, I think I did that for like eight or nine years. I liked very little of what I saw. I had my style had refined to like the stuff that I like. And um, one of the, there's a couple different kinds of art that I like, and one of them is this like. Uh, drawings with really interesting line quality and intention and one of the neat things about plotter art is like somebody's you know i think about um 
Vera Molnar, who's like the OG. She's about to turn 100 years old. She's still selling work. She's just got to show up in Berlin right now. She lives, she's from Hungary. She's lived in Paris her whole life. And she started doing work in the 60s on the mainframe computers in, that, that she would hijack when you know, the computer scientists were out protesting in the streets and stuff. And she, her whole goal was to program the computers to make art and that she didn't know exactly what would happen so that it would, and, and focus on it delighting her, right? Huh. So um, I've got a bunch of her work, and I, I visited her a few years ago. And this idea of setting up infrastructure to delight yourself is so rad. And she didn't sell work really until like, you know, early 2000s. So she went like 40 years of making art without anybody really, without being a commercial success. And when I met her, she said, you know, I, I, I made my husband breakfast and dinner. And for the price of that, I had my days free to pursue art. And now it's like, it, and she was so committed and exploratory and, and in seek of delight that the work, her whole career is just full of just delight. And you see it in the work. So I can go on about her, but. You feel um, free. Uh, one, yeah. of the thing, one of the things that's interesting about that story and her is I've, when I was talking to younger artists and they were there, I was talking to a parent of an artist and, and they said to me, what does it take to be an artist? And I said, you have to be. You have to think of it, making art is so important to you that if you were on a deserted island with no hope of rescue, you'd still make art without yeah. anyone ever seeing it. Yeah, and that's the, that is without question the dedication it takes in order to have that ability to kind of keep going. And even then you might not have a career out yeah. there, right? Like, well, that's, that's not the a, point. I mean, the point yeah. is, is you have, you have, you have no you have no control over the fact you must make this regardless of whatever happens. Yeah. So um, I idolized this one machine, uh, this 1985 HP 7550 pen plotter. So um, starting in the late 70s, pen plotters started to become important because people had bought computers like the Apple II Plus and these early computers, and they needed a way to do, they needed something to do with them because they just spent thousands of dollars on them and um, nobody knew what to do with them. So. HP comes out with this idea of a pen plotter that will make overhead transparencies for your presentations and handouts because this is pre-printers, right? Like right. this is so it, like it, it gives you output out of a computer, so you could, you know, do your put a, you know output your accounting list and have it have it write out your accounting details, and you could make pie charts and bar graphs and this kind of thing, right? So, um, I just. Uh, so I just kind of went deep on the HP, on HP plotters, and um, me and my assistant Jack just uh, talked. We, I was like, we got to find these guys, because this machine has like so many interesting innovations in it. Like there's this grit wheel that they used to where they took an aluminum rod and they covered it with just the right amount of glue, and then and then sprayed sand on it, and then that allowed them to move the the paper forward and the sand would dig into the paper imperceptibly, but it would lead, it would, it would make it work like a, like a, a rack and pinion. So they were able to control the paper very accurately moving forward and back. Huh. And, um, and there's a couple other things that they did that were super rad and all these systems are integrated and the plastic work that they did, they, they, they built out their own injection molded facility so that they could pioneer like glass filled plastics to do very, 
like uh, accurate and precise injection molded plastics. They, they were just on the front of everything. So we got a hold of about five of these guys who were there. And I was expecting to like go deep on um, like on the grit wheel and these other innovative kind of technologies that they pioneered. And instead, they mostly talked about how awesome a place it was to work and how they miss it, right? So HP in these days was super pioneering. They would go and they would find all the best engineers. They would go and recruit them out of schools, just hire the best ones. And they would get them in-house, give them a desk and a bench. Everybody worked in an open room with a desk, and then right behind you was a workbench. And they'd tell them to solve hard problems, and they'd give them the resources to do it. And they, that was something that they would call the other person's bench effect, where you would see what was going on on other people's benches, and you'd want to like have, a, have stuff, co cool stuff going on on your bench. Huh. And there's HP Labs where they were doing all sorts of, they were inventing stuff and then trying to get it into the engineer's hands. And they basically talked about it being a super like respectful place to work where people were helpful to each other. You know, everybody's kids were in the same little league kind of a, a vibe. And um, most of them worked there from like the mid 70s to the, the, until really the inkjet was on its way. And then they all sort of, they all sort of bemoan the, the inkjet because it took over the whole company and sort of made HP addicted to, to ink sales. And it sort of had an impact on innovation. And then they also are sort of grumpy about the current state of HP because they just have so much love for the 70s and 80s HP. But yeah, I went deep on that. And uh, I, these pen plotters, they made these things to have like 6G acceleration and they just scream they're so fast. What they innovated you, everything. What do you think? Why do you think that they, the HP, decided to abandon the pen plotter and go with the laser jet? So there was a, <clears throat> it, you know, I heard this story actually. So this guy Marv, who um, managed the pen plotter division, he had this experience where what, he had, they had an intern and he had his like he had a, a Cessna and his intern was like, Hey, can you come up to Santa Monica from San Diego and show my engineering class, the plotter that we've been working on all summer. And so Marv like got permission and did. And he threw the, this like large format pen plotter, took the legs off it, put it in his, uh, put it in his Cessna and flew up to, to, to Santa Monica and showed his students in the class, this, this technology. And then he went out to lunch with the student. And when he came back, the professor had just been doing, you know, on these plotters, there's like a test plot, which actually takes up a lot of the memory that they have, that basically allows you to make sure that everything's good. And he had like done like 50 test plots while they'd been out to lunch. And when he got back, and, and he basically kept visiting Marv and sort of forcing himself into the organization and was like, hey, I want to work at a company that can obsess this much about precision. And... Um, there was a hiring freeze, but Marv hired him anyway and got in trouble for it. But he was still he was so good that everybody was fine with it. And uh, this this guy ended up in, doing all the primary inventions on inkjet, which is where everything went to. Laserjet as well, but the inkjet stuff is like the color color printing stuff where that's like very high precision jets to deploy color. Um, but it's so also, they just found these people, and then they put them to work, and then interesting things happened. 
but it just seems like the mechanism is different too. Because I, when I went to you, you had that opening where there was the pen plotters, and you put the paper in, and then the the pen moves around the paper. Yeah, it seems as though I mean now we see printers. You the 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 there's a the paper is is rolled through to where the inkjet is. It seems as almost like a complete completely different mechanism for the final output. I just wonder where why they made that decision. You know, it, they they found a razor blade model, right? Like, and they oh, had that a little bit with the the pen plotter, in that they, you know, they they dominated the pen, the plotter pen market, which are specific pens that have a feature so that the, the pen plotter can hold onto them. But there's this sort of like thing that you know we all know about from having an inkjet, where you go to, you know, where you go to replace the ink, and you realize, oh shit, I'm going to spend more on one color of ink than I did the whole, the whole printer, right? Right. So they sort of, as soon as they had people over the barrel that way, I think everything turned, turned that way. So, so ink, pushing ink was where it's at. Yeah. Hmm. So, I mean, at what, what point does CNC enter your mind in terms of like your, your career and, and the, your direction and your, you know, obviously, I mean, it's, in, in, you're completely wrapped up in it from a business standpoint, but also from an art standpoint. When do you start to see CNC as as part of your life? So, um, you know, I was a school teacher, and I did I, in Seattle. We were like the 49th worst paid um, state. So I was making after seven years, I was making like 31k, and so I was really side hustling it up, trying to figure out how to make enough money to like have a car and eventually have a family, and ended up. Um, accidentally making videos and publishing them on the internet because nobody like I made all these art videos that nobody wanted nobody no gallery would represent me so I just started publishing them to the internet and then I started making all these videos publishing the, the videos I was making for my students about how to make stuff and um, I found myself with this crew in Seattle at HackerBot Labs and um, these are like, you know, these are like legitimate hackers and security professionals who get hired to break things and fix security flaws and all this kind of stuff. And so they're, they're really clever folks. And uh, I just fall in with them and we're having a great time. And I'd show up on Friday and be like, hey, we're going to make, and I was making, and, and then I got, and I got this part-time gig at first and then a full-time gig later making videos for Make Magazine. So I, where I would have to make something every week and then publish the video and a tutorial um, and a PDF showing how to do, do everything I had just done on Friday. And I started working with these guys in this workshop and um, we were trying to make a lathe into a CNCFI lathe in like 2005. You know, this is like the Arduino is still just, uh, you know, not existing yet. So it's still early. And um the workshop had gotten this ginormous, I think a Hitachi elbow mill that was like, it was giant though. It wasn't like a, it was like, I don't know, five times as heavy as a bridge port. So it was a really big machine. And we, we fantasized about making that CNC and there were kind of kits that we thought we could adapt and that never really happened. But then I, I uh, ended up going to these guys and gals and being like, Hey, I'm, let's make a drawing machine. And we put together a, uh, there was a control that had just come out that had enough IOs that we could make it work, and I got some stepper drivers. And we adapted like a vial sorting machine for blood blood work. Oh yeah, yeah. And um, and made a drawing machine that would take a picture and then 
we'd run it through a couple uh, like uh, program, a, a couple different sort of routines that would find the outlines and then do the fill. And we did that. That was really my first CNC experience is, is sort of doing a drawing machine from scratch. And then, uh, yeah, and I thought, you know, you do these, I would do these things and sort of be like, this is so rad, everybody's going to watch these videos, and then nobody would watch the videos. And the video from that series that got the most views was like, I, to thank everybody, I, I made eggs in the workshop on like a camp stove, and to, to, to like scramble all the eggs, I just stuck a fork in a, in a cordless drill and scrambled the eggs and made a little video about that. And that has like a million, millions of views, whereas like the drawing machine we just spent three weeks and three cases of Mountain Dew making, like, didn't get the attention it deserves. It's funny how that goes. That seems like that's like, I hear, I talk to YouTubers and that's what they say. The, the yeah. ones that you think are going to do well never do well, and the ones that you think are the worst are always the ones that do well. But to your point, like, that got me into this idea of um, computer-controlled machines. And then um, I moved to New York, and in Seattle, everybody has a garage, or, and we shared a really big space at HackerBot Labs. And in New York, everybody has like, in the city, everybody's got like a closet, right? And then they pull it all out and put it on the kitchen table and put it back at the end of the day. So um, while I was working at Etsy, I ended up starting a thing called NYC Resistor, which is a hackerspace in Brooklyn. And it's st we started that in 2007, and it's still going. Wow which is kind of nice. So it's like 16, it just became a nonprofit finally, so we don't have to file K-1s anymore. But uh, it's, uh, it's its own thing. And it, but the whole goal was to have, have a space that a bunch of hardware hackers could share and then have all the tools and, and be together, right? Have the resource right. of each other. And we bought a laser cutter back when those were like 35 grand collectively. And, and MakerBot really came out of NYC Resistor and the sort of saturation of, of smarts and tools that were there. So, and was it was it exciting? I mean, I, I'm 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 coming back to there's a, a couple things I'm, I'm I can't help but think. Sure. Being with Jim Henson and the idea of being able to physically make something that tells a story, or physically make something that allows the actuation of what you're trying to get across is a huge part of you being able to say, I can, we can do this. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the Jim Henson thing was like, Hey, we need to make like chimpanzee hands that we can form and we'll hold something. And we need an armature for that. Go find me some material I can use as an armature for that. And like, I have to go find it cause it needs to work that day. Right. right? Like that's sort of like, we're making chimpanzee hands, make it like manifestation go, yeah. right? Like um, that sort of, once you do that a couple of times, you're like, well, shit, if I can make chimpanzee hands, what else can I make? You know, it sort of opens up the possibility of like, well, if that of, of just completely stupid, absurd things. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Can exist. Like, maybe I can make some of the things that I think are, could be wonderful that are as exciting. And then, 
Combine that with the video stuff I did where for two years I was making something different every single week and making a video about it and then had to do the same thing the next week. And that sort of rhythm um, of just like having to get something done in a, like in a, uh, having to le learn something and then get, make something that was meaningful. Like I, I would look at like, you know, if I was going to make, you know, I, I was like, okay, I want to make a hovercraft. And like, it was like, okay, people have done this with leaf blowers. And I was like, well, we have to do something interesting. So we added like a giant slingshot in the back alley so that we could play like shuffleboard with hovercrafts, right? Like wow. finding this idea of like having to find ways of making it relevant, I think is the, you know, the, the, the creature shop gave me the ability to make super weird stuff on demand as, as like a normal thing. But the, the weekend projects make magazine videos made it like just the, uh, doing that every week sort of made that just a, a nice pattern. And then it was a little weird when I, you know, starting MakerBot and then like I did the same project for six and a half years. That was kind of, that was a different sort of rhythm. Was that hard? Yeah. I, for, so right at the beginning there, I started this thing called, I, I made up this thing called the Cult of Done Manifesto, which, which is on the internet and um, made it with my girlfriend at the time. And it sort of documented that my sort of like approach to like having to get stuff done. Um, and I, when I started, you know, running a company, it was definitely, I probably had it like years where I was like, ah, oh, I missed the hit of being able to just dig into something and then have it done at the end of the week and put it in the, put in the rear view mirror and move on to the next thing. Like, and then at the same time, like when you work on something for longer, you get a, there's a, I think you have to transition your, you know, the chemicals in your brain to, to enjoy progress more than like a whole new thing. I wonder, you know, you and I are within the same generation or generation X. I'm about to be 50. We're, we're in, in the, in the, in the winter. And I, and I feel as though our age group really w was the transitionary period between with the internet. I mean, we, we, you and I were both you know, children before the internet when we wore as yeah. the internet, as we see it. And we were able to kind of like slow, some of us were able to transition into this new world. You know, it's, it, it is really, it is amazing. Like I remember going to college, there wasn't really the internet. There was this, this college's uh, e email service, which was totally foreign to us. Right. But I mean, not, you're, you're talking 1992 in college. There wasn't really that. You had this, this, this growth before and after the internet. So I would imagine that for you who had the experience of physically making things as an artist or as, at working in Hollywood and stuff like that and to being part of the transition into modern day technology and modern day internet, it must have been a very exciting time for you. Because you hit the MakerBot thing when you, the MakerBot was, you know, or the, the hackerspace, you were probably still in your 30s, right? Yeah. So I just turned 50, as, I just turned 50, so got the colonoscopy and that whole nine yards as well. So I'm right there with you. P.S. Um, it's not as bad as you thought it was going to be, right? No, it wasn't, it wasn't bad at all. I, in fact, I was most scared of being knocked out because I'm a bit of a control freak. And that was the easiest part. Oh. So. I, I tell people when I had it, my wife's a nurse practitioner, so she had me have it like a little too early. I was <laughs> like, it was, my, it was a forced nap. It was the f best yeah. forced nap I'd ever had in my life. So I'm, yeah, I'm with you 100%. Yeah, yeah you have to go get it now when you're 45, uh, which they told me when I arrived there at 50. So right. uh, there you go. There you go. A little, little transition, a little transition period. So, so I think, 
Back to what you're saying with Gen X and the internet, I think, um, you know, there's something to being at uh, sort of like seeing something unfold, right? And right. Being at, like, like right now I feel like, you know, I was at the beginning of video blogging and blogging. I sort of saw that unfold. I feel like I've, there's a couple things I feel like I've been sort of through the early initial sort of time as culturally as things get adopted. And I, I think I'm kind of addicted to, to that a little bit. Yeah, um, I can, I believe that. It's funny though, that like you're talking, like, I think, so I'm doing this thing right now where I, um, in 2002, I committed to, uh, when I was in my artist zone, I would do figure drawing and I would go and I had read the first chapter of this book by Kimo Nicolaides called The Natural Way to Draw, which like all the Disney artists had to go through this program. Um, and I read the first chapter, which is all about blind contour drawing, where you look at something and you put your pen down on the paper and you wait till you feel and you don't look at the paper and you're looking at the thing and you wait till you feel like your pen is touching the thing, even though it's only touching paper. And then you move your eye and as you move your eye, you move your pen and you, you document very as accurately as you can through the coordination between your eyes and your hand, the shape of the thing that you're looking at. Huh. And I did this thing where I would go to figure drawing like three nights a week in Seattle for like two or three hours at a go. And I would, I have books filled with figure drawings from this time. And I would have to tell the, you know, the model like, Hey, just to give you a heads up. Like I don't look at the paper when I'm drawing you. So if I look like I'm boring my eyes through you, it's just my style. It's no big deal. I'm right? not really being weird. <laughs> and, um, and so I, and I would do, you know, for two or three hours at a time, I would go into this sort of focus zone and do these drawings. And they're, I really, they're really delightful, good drawings I'm, I'm proud of. Um, and they're filled like notebooks that are all just, you know, I see them on my desk across the room here. And I don't think that's possible anymore. Like I was like, uh, could I do this again? Because now I'm now I've got I just I spent the last couple of months trying to learn um, generative and you know uh, net, uh, networks to create a data set and then draw more drawings from a data set, and I got it to work. And I was thinking like maybe I instead of doing this I could just you know like just draw the things instead of having to go through this whole like uh, rigmarole to get you know an AI to draw like me and. I'm like, you know, I, I love the idea of being able to have two or three hours where I'm just focused on drawing, but like my phone's not going to let me do that, right? Like the, the world's not going to, the world is going to invade that so quickly. How could I create that sort of like sacred space without interruptions? I'm not even sure that's possible. I, I want to make a, I want to postulate a theory that I really have been thinking about for a long time and this kind of, kind of solidifies it just now. And I and I, I I go back to the puppets. I go back to Jim Henson, and I think to myself when I look at your your body of work in the sense of Bantam Tools, uh, MakerBot, for all the things that you've done, it all comes back to the puppetry, because puppetry is telling a story, but it isn't yeah. really about telling a story. It's creating the mechanism in which to tell the story, and that's really the story. And I feel as though that MakerBot and Bantam Tools is the same thing. You're kind of you're focused on the sculpture or the art or the, the, the program isn't the final outcome of telling the story, but it's actually the thing that's doing the work to facilitate the story. Yeah, this, uh, you're, you're onto something here. And I, I believe really strongly in this idea of infrastructure as a medium, right? Like, right. Um, 
I, I like to, you know, a lot of what I create is tools and then people go on to use them. And, you know, the CNC machines we use, a lot of them go into black boxes. You know, people are making prototypes of these things. So I don't get to know what a lot of our machines get used for, which, which really honestly bugs me because I want to know. Because um, that's what sort of gets me going is like, I, 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 I want to, our team creates the infrastructure and then I'm excited to see how, what happens in the world with it, right? Like as people use it. Um, but this idea of like creating infrastructure for, you know, whether it's a puppet show or a machine or a club or, uh, a, 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 you know, a, a series of events, like it's, it's, it's definitely, there's an orchestration piece to it that is part of the, part of the mix. I tend to think that most people, I, I used to, th I used to try to tell people that they, you know, you are what you are from the beginning. But I always believe that all your experiences, generally speaking, is for creative people, are they come from that early those early things, those being used to yeah. those early those early experiences. And obviously, I mean, I, I can't now. It's like I can't not think of your experiences in the love of puppetry. And the fact is, is like, all right, the story, maybe the story of the puppet show comes second to well, I got to make sure that this puppet fucking works. And that's kind of like you're you're more capable of that than the actual story in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, it, it gets you into weird. That, that, the mindset of like I I can make anything, I can fix it, definitely gets you in trouble though. Like I, you know, for when I was a teacher, I had like twenty different cars that were all worth five hundred dollars, and when they would need more than five hundred dollars to be fixed, I would have to go find another five hundred dollar car, and then I'd have to make it work and not die. Um, there's, there's like a, I think, you know, now, and now I'm, I feel like slightly more mature. Like when, when my car breaks, I go, okay, I could fix that. But like, you know, like my brakes just went out on my old car and I'm like, okay, I could spend the weekend learning how hydraulic systems work and brakes and, and, you know, of a 1980 car, or I could take it to somebody. And I, for whatever reason now I'm sort of like, embarrassingly like i'm gonna take it in to have somebody else do it so i think there's some i think i think you could take it too far i guess is what you're saying the sort of diy world but however i mean it's 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 like your your almost your mission statement i mean you're if you were to look at all your businesses that you've come up with it's always facilitating the me me mechanism for the storyteller i like that a lot i'm with you Thank dude you. listen i'm fucking I full like of it. them Bree, I'm fucking full of them, my man. I'm full of them. I cough this shit up left and right. You telling me? Are you nuts? I, I listen. The other thing is, is I happen to you know the back to you know the maker communities. I know so many. Yeah. I know so many makers, and we've been on this podcast. We've been, I've been talking to a lot of blacksmiths, a lot of bladesmiths who are using giant. I've been talking about the fact that in the last 50 years, I've been talking to master bladesmiths and and really like high level dudes, and we've all been coming to the conclusion that this there's a new concept and you, you, when you came to the shop, you got to see it. It's the recreational use of industrial equipment is becoming so far more, um, normalized. Like back in the day, they were never, you know, even a hundred years ago there, you didn't take a, you didn't take a blacksmithing class for recreation, nor right. would you, nor would you have some of this equipment, these like giant power hammers or bridge ports for, you know, or machinist stuff. And yep. now it's become such a huge part of the maker community in terms of having it in your garage and maybe yep. fooling around with, I mean, welders, you didn't have welder. I mean, even 20 years ago, 
it was it was very strange for welding companies to be selling welders to non-professional companies you know for to people mm. in their garages you know a buzz box here and there but there were no mig welders and tig welders in people's garages so i feel as though that you have really kind of tapped into this concept of making it approachable to have equipment that allows you to be creative i think there's something beautiful too in that like i feel like if you were going to get into blacksmithing, uh, say, X years ago, you would sort of have to commit to it as a career. Right. I think there's something really powerful for people who can be like, I want to have this experience of digging into this. And they're willing to commit a lot of their spare time, right? Like this idea of sort of the expanded hobby that is, can now include like welding, to your point. Um, I mean... I, I learned how to weld from, uh, from a guy who at a, at a conference where he was like, hey, I, didn't, I, don't, have a, I don't have a speech to give, but I, I brought my welding equipment. And we're going to, anybody who wants to learn to weld can, can weld. And I was like, I'm going to learn how to weld. And, you know, I'm not good at it right off the bat. And it's clearly something that you have to commit to if you're going to do it as, if you're going to make welds that, you know, you're going to be proud to look at. But at the same time, like, it's not that far away. Like, you, I could imagine. I can I can imagine a career in, in in welding or a side hustle in welding, or I could imagine being like, okay, I got to make this dune buggy or something like that. I guess I'm gonna have to learn how to do welding, and then it would just be part of that process, right? The the interesting thing about welding in and of itself is number one is they came up with the MIG welder. MIG MIG welder stands for mixed inert gas. I'm sure you know yeah. it has a you know you have a positive and a negative. You have your stinger and then you have your spool and when you press the trigger the uh, 75, 25 or whatever shielding gas comes out and then your in your wire uh, feeds and then that's what makes the weld. They created that to make it easier because it was too hard mm. for people to do gas welding. It was too hard for them to do uh, stick welding. There was way there was innovations to create things that would allow industrial things to be easier for normal people, and I mean that's why that's why three. If you talk to I had um, I had Stephanie Hoffman who's a she's a professional welding teacher. I had her on a number of years, months ago. Business is great because so many people do have learned how to weld from like the way I did from art teachers, and they're terrible. Mm. Like welding welders now, I mean, half of the welders out there, especially on social media, are terrible. And now that there are classes that people want to be proficient in, it's just interesting to see that how these industrial crafts are becoming much more um, approachable recreationally. I mean, I feel pretty lucky that I got to sort of jump in. At I got really, you know, we got really lucky in terms of timing with 3D printing to get in when, you know, when we started it, we were like, okay, we want a 3D printer. It costs 60 grand. Let's make one ourselves. And we figured out how to make one that was pretty crappy at the beginning and then got better for like $1,000 and then later $2,000. And now you can buy them for like $220 shipped on Amazon, right? Like it's sort of like the, the race to the bottom combined with the sort of uh, a bit, uh, like sort of uh, there's a lot of there's yeah, there's just a lot of opportunity that's opened up in the last 15 years in terms of access to, to tools. And yeah, I, I, there's, I, what are the things that we haven't gotten our hands on that we'll get our hands on in the next 10 years? That's kind of exciting to think about too. Well, but however, I, I'm convinced that your experiences 
are, are one of the reasons why MakerBot was such an explosive uh, company as it was. Explosive growth-wise. I mean, you rocketed to fame. You rocketed to innovation in the, in the Maker community. I saw that your cover of Wired Magazine. I mean, your experiences, it just seemed like the right place, the right time, the right guy. Yeah, it was, I, you know, I had the full, the full entrepreneurial experience, you know, jumping in without really any experience in running a company and then, you know, three guys, a laser cutter and a dream. And then a couple of years later, having 600 employees, definitely. And then, you know, selling the company to a public company, you know, getting named in an SEC lawsuit, you know, the whole nine yards. I, I got the full, the full experience with that one. <clears throat> I think though that we, in many ways, we stack the deck, right? Like, so I had been, I'd spent the previous four years um, on the internet making videos. You know, when you searched how to anything, my videos showed up because I was the only one doing hotel video, how to videos. And, and I, you know, I'd go to all these events where like, you know, back in the day, South by Southwest Interactive was like 300 people and everybody there was a creative talent who was doing something interesting on the internet. So, you know, you had like, you had Zay Frank there, you had all the Boing Boing folks there, you had all the interesting journalists there who were, who were and all the weirdos that would show up there. And we all knew each other because there wasn't that much stuff on the internet to see. So it was sort of like, it was sort of a, we, we sort of had the benefit of it being an earlier time with a, a smaller, definitely a smaller fishbowl, right? I can't, I can't even imagine. I, I'm amazed that you had the wherewithal to start, you know, posting videos on the, on the internet. I mean, I just, I, I remember, I guess 1996, my friend offered to make me a website. And I was like, what the fuck is that? And he made me a website. It was biglures.com. I was making these giant fishing lures. And he had big lures. I had biglures.com for a number of years. And I'm just like, I don't even know what the hell's going on. It was just a picture of me with these giant lures. I mean, they're talking 1996. But it was. <laughs> That's early. I, you know what, if I had held on to that name, I could have fucking sold it. But I don't know. I, I thought I, I'm not 100% sure what the hell is going to happen with this. But it, I mean, I'm amazed that you were as forward thinking as you were, given the time frame that it was. I mean, I, w I wish I could say it's, it sort of all looks like I was smart in retrospect, but at the time, you know, there was sort of, I, I had this sort of idea of like, oh, if I'm going to commit to something, I'm going to commit to something. Let's see what happens. And then I'd had enough experiments doing stupid and wonderful things and finding out by accident that they were sort of fresh and innovative. Like, I think there's something to that. Like, if I was going to tell somebody how to figure something out. I don't know if I'd say like go to school and have people tell you how to work. I'd say like just try something out. And you know, if you find your self-esteem aligned with video views, like try and figure out how to try and work with that, right? Like um and I think there's something uh, there's something I think about a lot of how like the innovative is right next to the absurd. Like when you're doing wow. something and you really like it and you're excited about it, but it makes no sense. If you keep going, like interesting things will happen one way or another. That's the artistic mind, though. I mean, there's a there's an old expression: do something, and then do something to that, and then do something to that, and then yeah. do something to that, and then you can end up with you know art to a certain degree. I'm not. I just. I believe that. I ha I believe that you have an artistic mind, and you know your the decisions that you make seem to come from a place of, you know, the artist isn't just like, I make a nice picture. It's about the body of work. And there are these logical progressions that you see within the confines of the, 
the the career or the body of the work of of an artist which which brings me to the fact that i i can't you can't help but think you're out of yeah uh, uh makerbot you sold your you sold them you're, you're out of makerbot and you started with 3d machines that that add 3d printers are they do it's an additive process and now you're in the the reductive process and it's yeah. hard for me to not make that connection of like well it's the logical progression from from adding to subtracting yeah it's um yeah i mean i i i'm really i mean i um i sort of fell into this part uh the bantam tools world because it was just such a good opportunity with a friend's company that was either going to go out of business or get sold and um i was able to acquire what was then other machine company and then it was kind of a long commute to california and i was able to buy property and peak skill and move it here and um yeah but the goal with bantam tools it's nice is is that you know the other makerbot i you know we started that and we took investment which basically means you're either going to go public or you're going to sell the company and um one way or another you're 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 sort of like you're on an aggressive time scale to grow something and then let it go and bent tools is nice in that i don't have to let it go it's something that you know it's i set it up so that um the people we the, we all get to come to work. We get to work with really smart people doing things, making things that are worth making, and um, in a beautiful place, Peekskill, right? So it's it's I, I I feel pretty grateful that I've been able to set up sort of a situation both for myself and my employees where we're we get to do interesting work. Do you think that the, what do you think the difference in demographics are between the demographics of the customers of MakerBot and the customers of Bantam Tools. You know, I, the thing that I uh, that I struggle with with Bantam Tools customers is a lot of, uh, is so many of them. I just know they're doing really cool stuff, but they don't share as much, right? So, like, we're at SpaceX. We have a bunch of machines at SpaceX, wow. and I have no idea what they're doing with it. And man, do I wish uh, you know? Do I wish I could, you know? be a fly on the wall in, in the room with, with our machines at SpaceX because I'd just love to see that. But, um, so I think that you know, our, our customers at Bantam Tools, you know, our machine's so capable, it's optimized for making aluminum parts and it unlocks a superpower for people who have it and that they don't have to rely on other people to make, make parts. They can just get it, you know, if they're brave, they can just get it done themselves. Um, so I love our customers and they're automatically by buying our machine, they're like a brave person, right? And then, um, and, and it's a real mix of like world changers, people who are at companies that are innovating, whatever's happening next in the world. Oh, there's love the train. It, love it, love it. And then, and then we've also got these skill builders. So our customer base is really split down the middle between innovators in companies doing next gen stuff and skill builders who are like a combination of students and professors who are, who are figuring out how to make stuff. And they've gotten to the point with a 3D printer where they need something made out of metal, they're done with plastic, and they need something that will hold the tolerance and, and, you know, and be made out of metal, right? And, and, uh, and so they get our machine and do cool stuff. But I, 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 those are our customers. And I, one, I, I feel like it's on my to-do list. That I, and I haven't really thought of this because it's been pandemic times and stuff, but 
I feel like I need to go out into the world and just like sort of hunt some of our customers down and be like, show me. <laughs> I want to see what you're doing. Well, I, I have to tell speaking of pandemic and you know, I have to tell you that I know of at least four makers during the pandemic in the beginning stages of the pandemic when there wasn't a lot of um, eye protection for people in the in the medical biz. Uh, I know a number of guys who were they were sharing the files to be able to make uh, yeah. visor, visors for the the medical medical people to be able to treat people. I know I know a number of guys who were like there was a file and then they were sending it around and all you had to do is buy a piece of plastic from like Staples and I know they're making I mean Craig Lockwood and my friend Chris and a number of other people mm. were doing they were using their 3D printer for this very and they weren't you know they were just dropping off boxes at the hosp local hospitals for for so people could have PPE it was a really incredible incredible moment in the maker community for that because it wasn't like just something yeah. they wanted. It was something that people actually needed. Yeah, I ended up winding up my little bot farm and making, um, th there's, in Croton, there's a community that, that sprung up to make, um, to sew um, masks and distribute them to the hospitals. And, and there was this thing that you could make on a 3D printer that allowed you to do like a type of a thing on your sewing machine where it would sort of fold the fabric up so you could do a nice edge. Right. And um, there's a word for that that I've lost, but I've ended up just cranking those out and dropping those off there and definitely made too many and was like, okay, next thing. But um, that must have been for you, for someone who creating these machines to be helpful to humankind. I mean, I know that you've said that, that you want this to be a better world. That yeah. must have been a good feeling because I know there had been a lot of articles and stuff like that about people using their 3D printers and using it for, you know, the greater good. Must have been, felt pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it was, I, it, you know, it's, it's funny. I, it, it felt good, but at the same time, it didn't feel like it was enough because at that, at that time, people were dying and it was really, really scary times. So it was like, oh. Yeah, but like you got like dude in his garage who just has, just has enough, you know, material and time. And he even even it was something, you know. It was like yeah. I mean, that was the ultimate. Like you, you think of a fire and you see a chain of people, and the chain of people bringing a bucket of water. Obviously, it's not enough water, but all these people working together to do something for the greater good is what you want. That's almost better than putting the fire. That's eh, not better than putting the fire up. But it's, you understand I, what I'm saying? <laughs> I, you know, it's fun. I'm going through all these uh, journals and and notebooks from 2002 and and. Um, one of the things I've thought a lot about over the years is this, just this idea of utopia, right? And I think a, a, a chunk of that is like um, being in a place where you can contribute and you're part of the community in such a way that the work you do is meaningful, right? Um, and, you know, I used to sort of fantasize about like, someday I'll buy an island and invite interesting people to it and we will all survive together. And, and I, that's sort of how I imagine getting to that feeling of, a, of community. And I think in many ways, we, like that's, when I reflect, that might be a little, I think that was definitely naive. And I think we can find that utopia in smaller communities locally doing, doing projects together, right? I think, especially in Peekskill, I don't, I don't know if yeah. you remember, but I, mean, I was involved with Sonny Cover at the Peekskill Coffee House, and we made coffee a bag of coffee that would the proceeds would go to feed to to pay local restaurants to feed the yeah. the workers at ho hospitals so it was like i felt like it was such a great thing because it was like 
the the money that was going to the restaurants to help because the restaurant biz got crushed in the beginning yeah. stages, and then they were feeding the people who needed to be fed. It was like this really nice community thing. I really felt very strongly about that, and I agree with you. I mean, ultimately, that's the that's the that's the goal in life is to kind of create these communities and have some sort of kind of like, you know. I don't want to say parasitic relationship, but you kind of have to have a parasitic relationship to a certain degree. I mean, I think I, peak skill is special. Like, I think that um, you know, like the uh, there was some there was some, there was some apartments that burned down recently, and oh yeah, I know at the coffee house they were like, "Stop bringing stuff. We're like, we can't. They're they're everybody's good now." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so like uh, there you know we've got like the the coffee house which is sort of the living room of the community and we've got a bunch of different the restaurant communities legit and there's a number of different sort of like come together sort of times that I think are that like the, like of places to be in a disaster I'd put Peakskill at a pretty awesome place to be cuz people will come together and make stuff happen. Do you think you know the meaning of life? Goodness gracious. I I'm convinced that I know what it is. Like, like without a shadow of a doubt, I'm convinced. Fire the missiles. What do you got? Well, it's, it's, it's a lot easier than, than you think. And you're far more, you're a greater, you're far more of a greater good at large person than I am. And I, I honestly feel as though for me, and I, I, when I was about 48, I started, I really started thinking about it when in my forties, especially thirties and forties, my thirties, I started to take being an adult seriously, working on my you know health and working on this, that, and other thing. And I came to the conclusion probably in the last couple of years that the meaning of life is leaving, and it's not profound, but it's leaving things better than when you first got here. Yeah. But for me, it isn't just making change on a community level. I don't, who gives a shit? I don't need to like have a, you know, a flag or something like that or a, be a politician or something like that. But it's the, I mean, my daughter is the perfect, the perfect result. You know, my my wife and I have had, you know, we were very fortunate to have, you know, a family and we had, but at the same time, we were able to sidetrack and, and kind of cut apart this generation, generational traumas that we didn't, you know, pass on to our own daughter. And I feel as though being a parent and make and minimizing those, those generational traumas mm. is making her a better person and ultimately her being a better person is better for society. That's that to me is leaving the world a better place is to not fucking your kids up or not giving, giving them these emotional baggage that will not allow them to be as successful as they could be. That's the meaning of life, yeah. Brie Pettis. I, I think you're onto something there. Cause like I, the, um, you know, if I, I, if, if, it's easy to be sort of critical and pessimistic, but you know, if you look, I'm not sure how you grew up, but like it, it was definitely not like kids grew up with a lot less neglect as a baseline than kids of the seventies. And, um, and then I think like my parents thought that they were definitely doing way better than their parents did. You know, my grandparents grew up, you know, sort of, um, you know, children of the, of the depression and, you know, be quiet kind of parents um and so i think like overall i think as a species in the last hundred years we're making like tons of progress and just in terms to your point around like passed on generational trauma um and just the amount of also ability for people to find people like them outside of their family and local municipality 
is also kind of a big deal. I think that's important too. But to your point, like leaving it better, I'm, I'm, I feel like I, I'm, I'm always looking for, and I don't think I've found any really, really big long ones, but this idea of like, if you give me a long enough lever, I can move the world kind of thing. Like, I feel like I, I, I I should be, I'm, I want to be as vigilant as possible so that if a lever shows up that we can, that I can, you know, put my weight into and pull down and have it improve the world. I want to be, be awake enough to, to see those levers if they show up. Well, or outside the world. I know that you're a lover of space travel, the concept of space. <laughs> you uh, were so kind. And I, I, one of the nicest gifts I've ever received, you made uh, replicas based off of pictures of the original mm. Apollo moon landing camera. And you gave me one of the recommend. I have it. I have it hung up in my shop because I just love it, and I show it to people, and I've talked about it a million times. Your love of space travel is pretty huge. What I like about that hammer is that it's the second one. On the first mission, they had a hammer that was sort of just like a geological hammer. It was small and didn't. And and they hated it so much that at the end of the trip, they they took it and they hucked it as far as they could into the distance away. Um, and then they, when they got back, they made a, the second one, which is the, the one you've got. Um, I like that it's the, the, the second, that the, it's, an, that it's an iteration, right? Like that, that right. you could go to space with a hammer and the hammer could suck and, and then you'd have to, and then you could just, and I mean, the space program, the Apollo program is, I think it's 600,000 people across five or six years full time to get us to the moon. And you just do like, okay, let's say that's 200 days, eight hours. So it's like 16. That's a lot. It's just a lot of hours. It's a lot of days time. Like it's just an immense. And you think about like one person, what one person can get done in a day. Like it's a, it's an epic coordinated project. I mean, I, I, I it's such a, hmm, I love that project. And, you can go to the Natural History Museum and they've got the, the pictures that they took up and up there and an artist was able to get to the actual negatives and make really big prints. And you can see that like their spacesuits are like sewed by hand. Like it's not, they're, they're sort of like, it's definitely sketchy up there. Uh, totally sketchy. Like the hammer's the least of their worries. Yeah. You get the feeling looking at those photos of the Natural History Museum that like they are both so psyched. You know, they're all, they're, they're all, those guys are so psyched to be in a place that nobody's been before. You know, these, these are test pilots who are used to just wrapping their legs around rockets and lighting them on fire. So they're like, and there's also the, a real, like when I look at them, I get emotional because I'm like, they don't know that they're coming home when they're there. Like yeah. it's very likely that they are living their last day every, every moment that they're up there. It's, it's crazy. It's totally crazy. scary. It reminds me, I, I, I saw the right stuff when I was a kid, mm. and I loved it. I used to watch yeah. it religiously, even though it's like, what is it, four hours long, something ridiculous. And it always reminded me of the idea of what it would be, probably be like underwater. Like the fact that like you're it, you're, it's everything is very claustrophobic about all of it. So I never had that feeling of being an astronaut or, or something like that. Scuba diving is pretty cool. I got into that for, for a little bit in Seattle. Um, and it, it, it's definitely otherworldly down there. I, yeah, it's not for me. 
I, 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 and it's not that I, I usually try to tell people you know, just because you don't like something doesn't mean yeah. you can't do it. But it's the same at the same time. I was like, yeah, well, I don't like it, so I'm not gonna. I, I don't. I have limited. <laughs> I gotta learn. I have to learn new things. I, I don't have a lot yeah. more time left in me that that I, I gotta start some doing something that I just don't want to do. But um, what I, what I was fascinated by was I got a great tour. You you've given me a great tour of Band of Tools a couple times, mm-hmm. and you were showing me your new machines, and you said one of the goals for this year for you is to have something that yeah. you guys have built go into space. How hard is that to do? You know, um, I don't know. So that's, you know, that's sort of the beauty of, of, of uh, audacious goal is, is you don't have a lot of reference material, right? So um, we've, you know, we make machines and I keep buying more machines. And when we find talent, we hire the talent in machining. Um, and we've got some spare capacity. Some months we don't sell as many, as many machines as other months. And, and in those months, we're starting to do things like we're using, uh, we're, we're making stuff for people on uh, Zometry, which is like, you can just go there and be like, I would like a, a widget that looks like, you know, here's my model. And then it, they'll like anonymously send it to us to be made and we'll anonymously send it off to, to the end customer. And, um, I'm, we started doing that, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting the people who make stuff in space so that we can be helpful. It's on our to-do list to get a, a ISO 9100D, which, like um, which is like a whole thing to sort of have a validated workshop with all the processes in place to be able to track all your materials and your processes to a thing. And, and so that's probably the next step. And then after that, we'll, I mean, I think the only way I'm going to get stuff in space this year is by, is by going out and meeting people who are making stuff for space. So uh, I've got to get out there more, I think, and meet the people who are making stuff in space and be like, hey, can we help? That's amazing. That would be unbelievable. That's all I got. That would be unbelievable. I think also, I mean, I, in the sort of earlier conversation, we, we were talking about small communities and I don't, space is a moderately big community that's moderately mature, right? Like it's been around for, you know, a long, I don't know how long people have been lighting off rockets, but it's got to be at least a hundred years, right? So it's a couple generations of folks. Um, I, you know, for a little, for in like 2016, I was like, what's the space thing that where I could get into and it wouldn't be, a, it's sort of fresh. And so I, I was digging into, uh, at the time I was digging into space food. And I, there was like, okay, here's a group of people that's like a few hundred people, and they meet in Berlin at a conference. They're mostly academics trying to figure out what people are going to eat in space. I was like, maybe that's a good way to get into it, is to, make, is to explore space food. But I got a machine shop now, so we're going we're gonna to go with that for now. <laughs> I have an idea for you. I, not an idea for you. So I was thinking about the connection between the 3D printer company, MakerBot, to now the the 3D CNC the the C the CNC router I mean how do you call it a milling machine company or how would you describe yeah. Bandum Tools? Bandum Tools desktop C milling machines. So the first company was ad- addition. The second p- uh, company was um, I'm being I'm using subtraction. subtraction. And one people used to ask me what sculpting is. How did you define what sculpting is? And I would say you I can you can either you can either Add material, subtract material, or a combination of both. That's what sculpture is. And then when mm. I found blacksmithing, forging, 
it was it changed my life because it's not really addition it's not really subtraction it's just a manipulation of mass and you were i was really really excited when you and your friend came and we made knives because i really wanted you to see because you have you're on both ends you have the 3d three uh, the the 3d printer and the the milling machine but you didn't have the ability to kind of see a cup, something that manipulates the mass. The mass is the same, mm. but you just change the volume. That- yeah, there was a moment when I was in your shop and you were like, hold it like this and hit it here. And I was like, okay, you hold it like that and hit it here. And then I got a few hits where I felt like I was actually able to, whatever the combination of all the muscles in my shoulder down to my hand to where the, aiming the hammer, getting it to the right space, and then the thing would go, uh, and it would go into the shape that I wanted it to go in. And I'm, I'm, I'm a noob, so I only, that only happened a couple times, whereas like, you'd be like, I'll just be, let me, and you'd like go bang, 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 and be like, you've been there before, and you know how to make, it, make the metal behave a little bit. But I, I totally got the, the, the hit that uh, you must get doing that, where it's like, okay, I hit this thing, and it's, it's shape-changing in the direction I want it to change. That's like... I could I could feel the chemicals in my brain being like, ooh, this is good. It's well one of the things about forging is there's a performance it's not like drilling let's just let's break it down to drilling a hole, it's not very performative. Like there's not like this finesse. It's it's very much, you know, you pull the lever, the drill goes down, you're drilling the hole. Forging is so much more performative and it's so much more about like Having something in your mind, and then somehow you're telling your body exactly what to do. And then when you forge, when you finish forging, whatever you've hit has become the representation of the thoughts that you're trying to execute at that time, the best of your ability. And it is very like... It's like maybe I have some discipline in your life because it's the it's truly the the most I mean it's the most performative action that you yeah. can have technique and discipline and then you execute and it's a different mindset from from everything else and I just really wanted you to kind of see that and now I'm thinking and I'm being jokey but like maybe that's the next that's the next company you know I mean you know the Forge Bot or something like that you know I mean I Desktop the other forging. thing that you know, you, you use the word performative a lot. And, and when, when I was visiting you and, and in regards to describing your, your, the thing that you do. And I have to say there's, I think, uh, like, I'm not sure what that means to you. But to me, it's that you're doing a performance as you're doing it. And you have so much charisma. And it's what makes this podcast so listenable to is because you have charisma and you enjoy it and you dig into it and you commit to it. And and you explore the frontier in, in, in audio, right? And I think, you, and you definitely do that in your shop as you're banging on things, right? So part of me wonders, like, have, like, have you, like, how, have you ever considered making your, the making, like, can you make your perf- banging on things with hammers like an actual performance instead of per- just performative? I, this, w- I, it's very interesting you say that. No, here's the thing. Here's the thing when I say performative. It's, it's a degree of choreography because yeah. you're, you have this very limited amount of time based on how much, how hot your steel is. And then, you right. know, you're going to lose the heat and then the, and then the steel. You have to commit. You have to, there is a lot of commitment to your movement. 
So when I say performative, I mean it almost, I don't want to say choreography, but it is choreography yeah. because you have to be in these certain positions and you have to act in within a certain amount of time. You don't have a lot of time to fool around. It's very, it's very, very, uh, you, it's very aggressive, not aggressive. It's very in the now precision and commitment. As you said, commitment. The funny thing is, is I've been involved with, um, we've done demos before and air usually people walk. And actually, when we did Maker Camp, Maker Fair, uh, the last Maker Fair, we hmm. had all talked about it. And the funny thing was, it was like, I, we all know, if you, if a guy does a, unless you're a blacksmith and you want to watch how someone makes a pair of tongs, I mean, you're going to be bored for a lot of it because there's time in between heats and it doesn't get heated and then it doesn't, you don't see results immediately. So the problem is, is it can't, these, these beautiful things, you know, you could tell a story. You could tell a story in 15 minutes, but if the thing happened in over a year span, it's very boring. It's very boring, but the 15 minutes of it is awesome. And the, unfortunately, most people don't want us. They want the boom bang and they want the fortune fire and they want all the bullshit and the sparks and stuff like that, but they want instant. They want instant. So it, we've done it in the past. And when we did it at Maker Fair, I said, we got to do things fast and we would do a one heat project where you'd have Cliff brought a hydraulic press and you'd take this big giant piece of steel and then you'd run the hydraulic press and he'd make this cup and you'd see the sparks and you'd, you know, you'd throw a candle in there and this big fire would come up and it would be a two minute, you know, one minute demo, which was perfect. <laughs> yeah, people do, drama. people do not, and me included, I had to sit through, I've had to sit through, uh, you know, uh, blacksmithing things from friends of mine. I'm just like, oh my God, just kill me now like i can't take this anymore it's it can be very most people don't want to see it you know mm. but you know you never know but i want to see you back here i feel yeah. as though i i feel as though that this is something for you that's gonna that would be beneficial to the creative process for you well i definitely felt the satisfaction of getting a good bang on a piece of hot metal so like i that's a you know it's funny how like you know those those pathways light up and you're like oh yeah this is good yeah so what's next for brie pettis what's next for bantam tools so um let's see so with bantam tools we've just launched the bantam tools explorer which is we took everything we learned about making lightweight cnc machines and we made a lighter weight one so um, instead of 80 pounds, it's 40 pounds. Instead of being seven by nine by three and a half, it's like uh, four by six by two and three quarters build volume. Uh, and it fits in a Pelican case, fits in the back of your car. It's, it's easily transportable, easy for an educator to take out and stick on a, on, a, on a table and use and then put it away. Easy for you know, folks to just get it out, use it, and put it away who, are, who, who have prototyping as part of their experience. <clears throat> and it, it's all black and looks good too, which doesn't hurt. And so we, we launched that in September and then, you know, I wish this didn't happen to me, but every single time it happens to me where we, we launch it and then we're like, wait a second, what if we did this? And we find out like, crap, it would be so much better. So we found a couple really clever ways of making the spindle better and doing assembly better. So we just started shipping those a few weeks ago. And so that's, I, 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 and you know, I've got all sorts of stuff I'm scheming on, but for right now, that's the most exciting thing going on is we've got that out in the world. Um, beyond that, it's all around art. Like my, my personal passion is all around art machines. So, 
I've got a, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, uh, and I like drawing and I like, I like intentional art made with intention whether you don't know what the outcome is. So I've got some stuff I'm working on there to, uh, I'm going to do, I'm going to do an art show, which is kind of a personal art show, which I haven't done since like 20 years for um, Peekskill Open Studios in the beginning of June. So I have to get a body of work together for that. And, uh, and then I'll show that. So it, it, personally, I'm noodling on, on how, to, how to make some, some art that I can stand. Look at you. I, I'm definitely going to be there. Uh, I can't wait to see. I want to spend more time with you. <laughs> I, I, I feel as though uh, I, I really enjoy the time we spend together. And I just want you to know, I'm saying here, I have an idea that I want to... Oh, good. I have an idea that I want to be, have Bantam Tools involved in, but I'm not ready to tell you because until it's a good idea, I have an idea, but it's not good enough yet. But I really want to be involved with the idea of local manufacturing. And that's been something on my mind for quite a long time. Buying local, selling local, being involved with Bantam mm. Tools and anything I can do for you as a friend or with Bantam Tools or whatever, you got me. You, I, you can count on me. I'm, oh, I'm on the Brie Pettis train. I'm on the Brie Pettis train. Well, it's mutual. I mean, it, like it, when you came over a, a few weeks ago and we used the, the laser engraver on, on those things, I was like, oh, this is fun. Yeah, it was fun. That was this fun. is only taking like an hour. What if we found stuff to do all day? Um, uh, you, so let's noodle on that and see what we can come up with. Brie Pettis, band of tools, ladies and gentlemen. You don't follow Brie Pettis. You don't, you're fooling around. Go check out <laughs> what he's got going on. Bantam Tools on Instagram. Check out Bantam Tools. See what they're doing. See what they're doing. It's really quite amazing. Um, and check out Bree. Everything he does, everything he does turns to gold, ladies and germs. Ladies, don't don't fool around. <laughs> don't don't. Uh, that's it. Period. End of sentence. Bree, thank you so much for coming on the show. You have an open invite. Anytime you want to talk about anything, you talk about generative art. We still have some more work to do on that, but at the yeah, same yeah. time, you have an open invite. Anytime you want to just podcast you feel free Let's do it. me a call guys sounds like a plan Bree. thank you so much over now guys Cheers. we'll see you next week thank you once again Bree. this show is brought to you by the makery the podcast network for makers 